Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, I'm glad you guys are entertained by my uh, my pants. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for coming out. Uh, if this is your first time here, first time in a while, we are on week four of a series called Participation Trophies. Um, and if you've been keeping up, you'll know that the reason why we're looking at participation trophies is because we are trying to break free from the cultural mindset of what it means to participate. Um, I've mentioned many times before, and I've poked fun at it, that it's, it's okay if on the soccer field we, we say that if you just show up, that's all it takes to participate, and that's all it takes to succeed. We can leave that on the soccer field for the, the junior hires and the fifth graders. That's fine. But that, that mentality can't follow us into the church. Um, because in, in the church, there's a different mindset, there's a different standard of what it means to participate in the kingdom of God. And so we have been working from Philippians 3, 10 through 11. This has been our key verse for this entire series. I'm just going to read it for us. This is what Paul says. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And so what we see Paul does is he looks at the life of Christ and he doesn't just commemorate it and say, well, it's a great story, it's a powerful story, but he says, how can I actually get in on that? How can I participate in that? How can I actually align my life with his in such a way that I'm walking in the same way as Jesus? And so that's what it means to participate. It's something that's costly, something that requires our effort. And so we want to align ourselves with that form of participating in the life of Christ. And so last week we looked at, the, we looked at what it meant to participate in the calling of Jesus. And the main thing that we focused in on was the fact that Jesus had to respond to the same call that you and I have to respond to every single day of our lives, which was, if you remember, will you faithfully follow God? Will you faithfully follow God? Even Jesus had to say yes to that, and how much more so do we need to say yes to that every single day of our lives? But today, I want to turn to a different subject. I want to look at what it means to participate in the servanthood of Jesus Christ. You see, the word servant or servanthood is one of the most synonymous phrases or concepts that's associated with Christianity. We, we are known for going on missions trips. I cracked up when we were down in Haiti. Every time we're in Haiti, without fail, there's like three other missions trips with us on the plane. Or when you're in the airport, you're going to see some of them even have, you know, coordinated shirts and stuff. But you, you're always going to find missions trips all around Haiti. Why? Because that's, that's what Christians do. That's how we serve. We go on missions trips. We volunteer all the time. We, we pack out Feed My Starving Children pretty much 24-7. There's Christian groups and they're serving and, and packing food. Uh, we're always volunteering and we're always collecting money and resources to help those who are in need. So servanthood is no surprise it's a, it's a core value of the Christian faith, and I think we do it pretty well. Um, it's also a key phrase that is used to refer to our relationship with God. I mean, how often do we, we pray here even on Sunday mornings, or do we confess, Lord, I'm here to, to serve you. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to give you everything. And so because it's such a, uh, such a key phrase that we use, and we see it so often, it's worth us pausing and taking a deeper look at what it means to be a servant and how we can participate in that. 
So today, I just want to move through some different portions of Scripture, and we're going to pull out some, some key nuggets of truth um, that have to do with servanthood. But to, to begin with, we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark. And, and the reason why is because uh, many theologians believe that Mark wrote his entire Gospel with Isaiah 53 in mind. If you don't know Isaiah 53, it's the suffering servant. And so Mark, he, as he writes about the life of Jesus, he has in mind the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and he paints Jesus in that light. And in fact, uh, Mark 10.45, many of you know exactly what that verse is right now, is the key verse of the entire gospel. The entire gospel of Mark is summed up in Mark 10. 45. So we're actually going to read, uh, starting in Mark 10, 35, going up to 45, and you'll see what that key verse is. Read along with me. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's already a setup right there. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Now, just, just for a second here. How immature is that walking up to Jesus? I mean, that's what a fifth grader does right there. Mom, promise me whatever I ask you, you're not going to say no. You know, like that's like such an immature way to, to approach it. And clearly they were afraid that Jesus was going to say no. So anyways, uh, this is how Jesus replies. He says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They respond, we can. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And rightly so, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Think about what they were asking Jesus. They were saying, can we rule over these 10 people right here? <laughs> yeah, they were probably pretty mad at James and John for that. Jesus called them all together. He said, look, huddle up, huddle up. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is the key verse of the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus came as a servant. So James and John, who are they? Well, they're brothers to start with, and they were fishermen that were called by Jesus. Jesus was walking along the shore. He calls them. They actually leave their father, Zebedee, in the boat to clean up by himself. It sounds like dinner every night for most of you parents. But they, they run out of the water, and they leave their father behind. They drop everything, um, and they follow Jesus. Now, you fast forward, and you have them asking this question of Jesus. They wanted high status. They wanted a place of authority in Jesus' kingdom. And the question has to be asked, how do, how do two fishermen go from knowing that the rest of their lives would be spent fishing, and that would be it, to a place where they actually thought they had a chance to sit at the left and right hands of a king? How do you get to this place? Well, they saw it in Jesus. 
They saw it in Jesus. They spent a lot of time with Jesus. And one thing they saw in him was they saw a man who spoke with authority when he spoke the word of God. So much so that even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people that did not agree with Jesus, even they noted themselves, this is a man who speaks with authority when when he preaches the word of God. The other thing they saw in Jesus is they saw that Jesus had authority over sickness and over disease and even over demonic spirits. They watched Jesus heal people left and right. They watched uh, Jesus cast out demonic spirits from people. They saw Jesus exercising authority in a way they had never seen before. And lastly, on top of that, not only did they see it in Jesus, but they actually partook of it themselves. Jesus, before this, gives the disciples authority over sickness and over demonic spirits. And the disciples go out and they actually themselves are healing people in the name of Jesus. They are casting out demons in the name of Jesus. So you say, how do two fishermen get to the point where they say, I want to sit at the right and left hand of a king? Well, it's because they have seen authority and they have tasted authority. But... You pair that desire with some character flaws. See, James and John, they struggled with pride and they struggled with the abuse of power. One time they found a man that was casting out demons in the name of Jesus and he wasn't a part of their group. So naturally they said, stop doing that. They completely overlooked the fact that demons are being cast out of people, that oppression is being stopped. But because you're not part of our group, stop doing that. Jesus rebukes them for doing that, by the way. But this is my favorite one. Jesus was walking to Jerusalem one time, and they had to pass through this village, and the village did not welcome Jesus and his disciples, so they had to take a detour, all right? As Chicagoans, we all know what a detour is. It's, you know, it's a little bit annoying, but it's, it certainly doesn't call for the punishment that James and John had in mind. They said, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven and destroy the whole village? That's not, the, that's not the proper response. And Jesus, again, rebukes them for that. He's like, no, 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 that's, that's not what we're going to do here. <laughs> so they struggle with abuse of power as well. I mean, how much overboard do you need to go? You're going to kill an entire village because they made you take a, a three-minute detour around another way. See, the problem was that James and John were replicating the old way. See, there was not, there was not a new God But there was a new fight. You see, who else called down fire from heaven? Elijah called down fire from heaven in the Old Testament. And he did it on the false prophets. And so in their mind, they saw a king of Israel, and they went right back to what they always knew. They saw Elijah calling down fire. They thought, oh, this is how this kingdom is going to look. But Jesus had to remind them, no, I'm the same God, but the fight is different now. And this is what Paul said all the time. He said, we no longer fight against flesh and blood, but against what? Evil spirits, evil forces. Same God, but there is a new fight now. God's servants always need to stay aware of the fight at hand and the tools that we have to fight with. It's so easy. It's so easy to get caught in the fight of 50 years ago. But let me tell you something. The fight changes. 
The fight changes. And what God's servants need to be good at is keeping their eye on what is the fight right now that we are to engage in. What is the fight that we need to engage in right now? And this is why Jesus told them to become like little children. Like little children. Because he said you need to put yourself in a place where you can be teachable once again. And for an old man to become a child in his thinking means that he needed to unlearn the old ways, unlearn the old fight and the old tools they had to fight that fight and become children so Jesus can say, let me tell you what the new fight is and the new tools that you have to fight that fight. So God's servants always need to stay aware of the fight that is at hand. Now this is what's interesting though. Jesus actually does not condemn their desire for greatness. But he does correct their desire to make themselves great. This is my first point today is this. The issue is not greatness, but how you use it. The issue is not greatness, but it's how you use it. Greatness is the product of holding authority. It's having power. It's being given a place of rank. The more you hold, the greater you are. That that is what greatness is. How many times did we sing it this morning? How great is our God? Why? Because He is supreme over all. He has all power. He has all knowledge because He is greatness. He doesn't possess greatness. God is greatness because He's above all. That's what it means to be great. And you see, the kingdom of God, it has a place of authority. It has rank. It has rulership. There was times that Jesus even told the disciples, you will rule in my kingdom. There is a structure of authority in God's kingdom. You see, the kingdom of the world that we see, we also have a structure of authority. Well, let me tell you something. Where did that come from? Well, Satan can't do anything new on his own. All he knows how to do is steal and pervert. All he can do is steal and pervert. So you ask, why does the world have this structure? Because Satan stole it from the kingdom of God and then he perverted it. So we still have it here. And this is what this looks like. The world's ways are broken. So we have, a, we have authority, we have rule, and we have rank. But here's the problem. That typically ends in some form of abuse. It ends in imbalance. And oftentimes it even ends in oppression. That's what the enemy does. He takes something that's actually good and then he perverts it and uses it for his means. But again, the issue is not greatness itself. It's how you use it. So Jesus qualifies it and he says this. Whoever uses greatness to serve others is the one who is truly great in my kingdom. So he flips the whole thing. Whoever uses greatness to serve others. He says, not as the Gentiles do, who lord it over and hold their high rank and they go and lot it about. Not as they do, but the one who serves others with greatness is who is truly great in my kingdom. And that was always the model. That is truly what a government is. It's given a place of influence to serve others into a place of wholeness. Does that not sound like the kingdom of God to you? Give it a place of influence to serve others into a place of wholeness. The problem came when greatness turned inward. 
And that's what James and John did. But Jesus, again, he doesn't condemn the desire for greatness. He says, you just need to use it the way I tell you to use it, which is to serve. Look at Jesus himself, the perfect example of what it meant, what it means to be a servant. In John 13, 2 through 5, it says this, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from God and was returning to God. So He got up from the meal, took off His outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around His waist. After that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash His disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. The first thing I want to point out is it says the evening meal was already in progress. The reason why John points that out is because Jesus begins washing their feet at the quote-unquote wrong time. You're supposed to wash their feet when they came in to eat, not in the middle of the meal. And I believe what's happening here is John's already letting us know, hint, hint, Jesus is disrupting the order that we know. He's doing things out of order, just so you know. And what did he do out of order? He served out of order. Again, it goes right back to it. You've seen what servanthood looks like, how the Gentiles do it. But Jesus is bringing a new order of what it means to be a servant, what it means to use your authority. So the Father gave Jesus his greatness, and his response was to get off of his throne. He got off of his seat, and he humbled himself to a place of a servant, and he served his disciples by washing their feet. See, feet were the dirtiest part of the human body. All day, you'd wake up in the morning, you'd put sandals on, and you'd walk about. And your feet would get so dirty because they were exposed. So anytime you went over to someone's house, it was common to honor them by washing their feet. What's the point for us today? There are people that are covered in the filth of this world. And we are called to use our authority... We are called to use the greatness that Jesus has given us to do what? To serve them and to wash that filth away. They have been collecting the filth of this world day after day after day. The lies the enemy has been telling them. The lies they believe about themselves. Their identities become corrupted. They don't believe they are loved by God. And Jesus said, I gave you my word to use it and to go and wash the filth of the world off of the people around you. That's what it looks like to use greatness to serve people, to make them whole, to wash them clean. See, Jesus gave people dignity and he gave them godly identity. And that is our call as the people of God is to serve people into that place. The issue is not greatness. It's how you use it. We just looked at two men who went out and they sought greatness for themselves, but I want to take a look at someone who was actually sought out by greatness. Let's look at Luke chapter 1. Let's just take a moment right now. It's like God's on that. We need to wash some filth off some people. Jesus, we just thank you for that. We, thank, we just thank you for your model of servanthood, Jesus. We don't want to move too quickly past that. Jesus, you are perfect. There's no king like you, Jesus. There's no king like you. 
No king that would get off the throne and serve like you did, Jesus. We just thank you that we are part of a kingdom that is unlike this world. And you showed it to us. You showed it to us, Jesus. You've shown us what it looks like to truly walk in authority. It's to serve. We just thank you for that, Jesus. Follow me in this in, in Luke 1. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. There's already a miracle in progress. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. The greeting, the greeting actually surprised Mary. It surprised Mary that the angel would say, you favored by God. Because a young girl in her time did not receive that kind of greeting. That was not customary to receive a greeting of being favored. But what I love is that Mary doesn't reject it. Instead, she ponders it. She doesn't push it away. You know, I think sometimes we, we hear God say things to us and, and, and that's how you know that there's a place in your heart that needs to be healed when you push it away. You know, sometimes it could be just a simple phrase, God loves you. If you're trying to push that away, that means that there's something in your heart that needs to be healed so that you can receive it. But what I love is that, that Mary, she doesn't push it away, she ponders it instead. She actually digests it mentally and integrates it. Okay, this surprised me, but I'm actually going to, okay, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to receive that. Now, what's interesting is that right before this, we have the story of Zechariah and the miraculous birth, or prophecy of, of John the Baptist being a, a, a miraculous birth. Um, now, they, these stories pretty much parallel each other. Like, the same things happen between both stories, but there's different outcomes in it. Um, and what happens is they both ask questions about the prophecy that's given them. The angel comes, tells Zechariah, you're going to have a son um, in your old age. And, and Zechariah responds, he says, but how is this possible? Because he says, I'm an old man. And then he says, and my wife is well along in years. He didn't call her an old woman. <laughs> She's just well along in years. But the, see, the angel actually interprets that as unbelief. Now, Mary asks a similar question. She says, how is this going to happen because I'm a virgin? But the angel does not, he doesn't uh, interpret that as unbelief. He sees that actually as faith. But here, here's the difference here. We need to look 
at when the angel Gabriel left. You see, when Zechariah asks the question and the unbelief comes to the surface, the angel shuts Zechariah's mouth so he cannot speak again. But when he talks to Mary and he tells Mary what's going to happen, Mary responds, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. What's the point? The angel did not leave until he knew God's word would be safe. The angel did not leave until he knew God's word would be safe. He was not just a messenger that was sent to give the word of God. He was also responsible to make sure it would remain safe. So he knew because Zechariah had unbelief, he had to shut his mouth so that his words of unbelief would not contaminate the word that was given to him. But with Mary... He knew the word would be safe because she said, I am the Lord's servant. I receive what you've given to me and I will care for it. I will care for it. I will carry it and care for it. God's servants are entrusted with God's word. You see, when I started studying this, I thought for sure I'm going to look at servanthood and I'm going to see a lot about physical acts of kindness and all this. And of course, that is certainly in Scripture. But I realized that first and foremost, a servant of God is someone who's been entrusted with God's word. That's what it means to be a servant of God. It's someone who carries the word of God in a responsible manner. This is the dominant feature of being a God's servant. Simply put, it's one who does what God tells them to do with what he's given them to do it with. What does it mean to carry God's word? The word was, this is what God is doing right now in his plan of salvation. To Zechariah, it was John the Baptist, the forerunner for the king. To Mary, it was, you're actually going to give birth to the king. But this is what I'm doing right now to accomplish my plan of salvation. That's what the word of the Lord is. You know the gospel message? That's a word that you've been entrusted with. It's what God is doing right here, right now, to bring about salvation. And God wants to know, can I trust you with that word? Can I trust that you're going to protect the word? That you're not going to hide it somewhere and not use it? Can I trust that if I give this to you, you're going to be fruitful with it? That is a servant of God. Yeah, God, you can trust me with it. You can trust me with it. Here's the last thing I want to look at today. Let's look at the Apostle Paul. He says something interesting that just through the years, this phrase has popped up over and over again. To be honest with you, I didn't quite understand it, but I feel like I have a little bit more of an understanding now as I studied for this. And look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 11.2. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and they're struggling with a lot of, uh, there's a lot of accusations being thrown at the Apostle Paul, and he's having to fight some of this. And there's some people that are, trying to, that are trying to claim their devotion. And so Paul writes this letter and he says this in verse 2. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Just like I referenced earlier on, the enemy takes good things and perverts them. 
Do you know if there's actually a form of jealousy that is honoring to God? I'll take you a step further. Did you know there's actually a form of lust that's honoring to God? Lust is just a strong desire. The enemy took it and he perverted it by putting it in the wrong direction and setting the sights on something that was not godly. But there's actually a strong desire that actually is pleasing to God. Paul even tells us to lust after the gifts of the Spirit. But anyways, Paul is saying here, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. As in, I don't want you to belong to anybody else besides Christ. I, you will not be shared with any other God, with any other gospel, but only the gospel of Christ and only to Jesus. Now the Apostle Paul, oh, this is the point here, sorry. God's servants, they have something to show to God. God's servants have something to show to God. The Apostle Paul poured his life out for the people that he was sent to serve. And this is actually the reality of what it means to be God's servant in Scripture. People who are entrusted with the Word of God, they often end up giving, they ended up giving their life because of the Word that was entrusted to them. And, and Paul certainly shows us that. But ultimately, this was Paul's hope. Paul's hope was that at the end time judgment, when we are all brought before the judgment seat, he actually says, I want, I want to present you to Jesus Christ with me as the one whom I served and the fruit of that servanthood right here in front of me before the throne. When you give your life to serve other people, that's something that, at the end time, you will literally bring before the throne with you. Jesus, look, look at how I poured my life out for these people. Look how I served these people. Paul even says to present you as a pure virgin to him. That he served in such a way that he brought them into identity and into wholeness. Look at what Paul writes. This is what I want to end on here. He says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path. So that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. How about that? It's not about where you sit, it's about what you hold. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. That last phrase Making others rich. Making others rich. Paul's not referring to physical wealth. He's referring to spiritual riches. Spiritual richness. richness. That's what it means to serve people. You serve them with what you have so that they become rich themselves. We talked about it weeks ago. What God has given you, it does not run out and it does not run dry. You can give and give and give and give and it will not 
run dry. Would you bow your heads with me today? Father, we thank you right now for the word that you have given to us. It's the good news of your gospel. It's the good news that says that you are creating all things new right now. You are creating new people right now. You are washing them with your word. You are washing the filth off of their lives from the world. And you are setting them apart by what you say is true about them. And Father, we thank you that you have entrusted us with this ministry. You said you can participate in this too. I'm calling you to be my servant. And I'm giving you my word to go and do it. And so, Father, I ask that you would make us into a people who walk around with the conviction that we've been given something of immeasurable value, which is your word. And I ask that you would bring people into our lives that we can serve and to serve them well. That we can serve them into a place of godly identity and godly wholeness, Father. And that our work would stand the test of time. That at the end time, we would be able to stand before you and say, Jesus, this is what I did with your word right here. This is what I did with what you entrusted me with. So, Father, we just thank you that we get to partner with you in this. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen.